CD3. Lord Vetinari stood looking out of his window. His office had once had a wonderful view of the city, and technically it still did, although now the roofline was a forest of clax towers, winking and twinkling in the sunlight. On the tump, the old castle mound across the river, the big tower, one end of the grand trunk that wound more than 2,000 miles across the continent to Genoa, glittered with semaphore. It was good to see the lifeblood of trade and commerce and diplomacy pumping so steadily, especially when you employed clerks who were exceptionally good at decryption. White and black by day, light and dark by night, the shutters stopped only for fog and snow. At least until the last few months. He sighed and went back to his desk. There was a file open. It contained a report from Commander Vimes of the City Watch, with a lot of exclamation marks. It also contained a more measured report from Clark Alfred, and Lord Vetinari had circled the section headed The Smoking Gnu. There was a gentle knock at the door, and the Clark Drumknot came in like a ghost. The gentlemen from the Grand Trunk Semaphore Company are all here now, sir, he said. He laid down several sheets of paper covered in tiny, intricate lines. Vetinari gave the shorthand a cursory glance. Idle chit-chat, he said. Yes, my lord, one might say excessively so, but I am certain that the mouth of the speaking tube is quite invisible in the plasterwork, my lord. It's hidden in a gilt cherub most cunningly, sir. Clark Bryan has built it into its cornucopia, which apparently collects more sounds and can be swivelled to face whoever... One does not have to see something to know that it is there, Drumnot. Betinari tapped the paper. These are not stupid men. Well, some of them, at least. You have the files? Drumnot's pale face bore for a moment the pained expression of a man forced to betray the high principles of filing. In a manner of speaking, my lord, we actually have nothing substantial about any of the allegations. We really haven't. We're running a concludium in the long gallery, but it's all hearsay, sir, I'm afraid. There's hints here and there, but really we need something more solid. There will be an opportunity, said Vetinari. Being an absolute ruler today was not as simple as people thought. At least, it was not simple if your ambitions included being an absolute ruler tomorrow. There were subtleties. Oh, you could order men to smash down doors and drag people off to dungeons without trial, but too much of that sort of thing lacked style and anyway was bad for business. Habit-forming and very, very dangerous for your health. A thinking tyrant, it seemed to Vetinari, had a much harder job than a ruler raised to power by some idiot vote-yourself-rich system like democracy. At least they could tell the people he was their fault. We would not normally have started individual folders at this time, Drumnot was agonising. You see, I'd, I'd merely have referenced them on the daily. Your concern is as ever exemplary, said Vetinari. I see, however, that you have prepared some folders. Yes, my lord, I have bulked some of them out with copies of Clark Harold's analysis of pig production in Genoa, sir. Drumnot looked unhappy as he handed over the card folders. Deliberate misfiling ran fingernails down the blackboard of his very soul. Very good, said Vetinari. He put them on his desk, pulled another folder out of a desk drawer to place on top of them, and moved some other papers to cover the small pile. Now, please show our visitors in. Uh, Mr. Slant is with them, my lord, said the clerk. Vetinari smiled his mirthless smile. 
How surprising. And Mr. Reacher Gilt, Drumnot added, watching his master carefully. Of course, said Vetinari. When the financiers filed in a few minutes later, the conference table at one end of the room was clear and gleaming, except for a paper pad and a pile of files. Vetinari himself was standing at the window again. "'Ah, gentlemen, so kind of you to come for this little chat,' he said. "'I was enjoying the view.' He turned around sharply and confronted a row of puzzled faces, except for two. One was grey and belonged to Mr. Slant, who was the most renowned, expensive, and certainly the oldest lawyer in the city. He had been a zombie for many years, although apparently the change in habits between life and death had not been marked. The other face belonged to a man with one eye and one black eye-patch, and it smiled like a tiger. "'It's particularly refreshing to see the grand trunk back in operation,' said Vetinari, ignoring that face. "'I believe it was shut down all day yesterday. I was only thinking to myself that it was such a shame, the grand trunk being so vital to us all, and so regrettable that there's only one of it.' "'Sadly, I understand the backers of the new trunk are now in disarray, "'which, of course, leaves the grand trunk operating in solitary splendour, "'and your company, gentlemen, unchallenged. Oh, "'What am I thinking of? Do be seated, gentlemen.' "'He gave Mr. Slant another friendly smile as he took his seat. "'I don't believe I know all these gentlemen,' he said. "'Mr. Slant sighed. "'My lord!' "'Let me present Mr. Greenyham of Ankstow Associates, "'who is the Grand Trunk Company's treasurer, "'Mr. Nutmeg of Stow Plains Holdings, "'Mr. Horsefly of the Ank Moorpork Mercantile Credit Bank, "'Mr. Stowley of Ank Futures Financial Advisors, "'and Mr. Gilt, all by himself.' "'said the one-eyed man calmly. "'Ah, Mr. Reacher Gilt,' said Vetinari, looking directly at him. "'I'm so pleased to meet you at last.' "'You don't come to my parties, my lord,' said Gilt. "'Do excuse me. "'Affairs of state take up so much of my time,' said Lord Vetinari brusquely. "'We should all make time to unwind, my lord. "'All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, as they say.' Several of the assembly paused in their breathing when they heard this, but Vetinari merely looked blank. Interesting. He riffled through the files and opened one of them. Now, my staff have prepared some notes for me, from information publicly available down to the Barbican, he said to the lawyer. Directorships, for example. Of course, the mysterious world of finance is a closed <laughs> ledger to me, but it seems to me that some of your clients work as it were for each other. Yes, my lord, said Slant. Is that normal? Oh, it is quite common for people with particular expertise to be on the board of several companies, my lord. Even if the companies are rivals? said Vetinari. There were smiles from around the table. Most of the financiers settled a little more easily in their chairs. The man was clearly a fool about business matters. What did he know about compound interest, eh? He'd been classically educated. And then, they remembered, his education had been at the Assassin's Guild school and stopped smiling. But Mr. Gilt stared intently at Vetinari. 
There are ways, extremely honourable ways, of assuring confidentiality and avoiding conflicts of interest, my lord, said Mr. Stunt. Ah, this would be, what is it now, the glass ceiling, said Lord Vetinari brightly. No, my lord, that is something else. I believe you may be thinking about the Agatean wall, said Mr. Slant smoothly. This carefully and successfully ensures that there will be no breach of confidentiality should, for example, one part of an organisation come into possession of privileged information which could conceivably be used by another department for unethical gain. This is fascinating. How does it work exactly? said Vetinari. Uh, people agree not to do it, said Mr. Slant. I'm sorry. I thought you said there was a wall, said Vetinari. That's just a name, my lord, for agreeing not to do it. Ah, and they do. How wonderful. Even though, in this case, the invisible wall must pass through the middle of their brains. We have a code of conduct, you know, said a voice. All eyes, except those belonging to Mr. Slant, turned to the speaker, who had been fidgeting in his chair. Mr. Slant was a long-time student of the patrician, and when his subject appeared to be a confused civil servant asking innocent questions, it was time to watch him closely. "'I'm very glad to hear it, Mr.' Vetinari began. "'Crispin horse-fry, my lord, and I don't like the tone of your questioning.' For a moment it seemed that even the chairs themselves edged away from him. Mr. Horsefry was a youngish man, not simply running to fat, but vaulting, leaping, and diving towards obesity. He had acquired, at thirty, an impressive selection of chins, and now they wobbled with angry pride. It is wrong to judge by appearances. Despite his expression, which was that of a piglet having a bright idea, and his mode of speech, which might put you in mind of a small, breathless, neurotic, but ridiculously expensive dog— Mr. Horsefry might well have been a kind, generous, and pious man. In the same way, the man climbing out of your window in a stripy jumper, a mask, and a great hurry might merely be lost on the way to a fancy dress party, and the man in the wig and the robes at the focus of a courtroom might only be a transvestite who wandered in out of the rain. Snap judgments can be so unfair. "'I do have a number of other tones,' said Lord Vetinari calmly. Mr. Horsefry looked around at his colleagues, who were somehow suddenly on the distant horizon. "'I just wanted to make it clear that we've done nothing wrong,' he muttered. "'That's all. There is a code of conduct.' "'I'm sure I've not suggested that you have done anything wrong,' said Lord Vetinari. "'However, I shall make a note of what you tell me.' He pulled a sheet of paper towards him and wrote, in a careful copperplate hand, Code of Conduct. The shifting of the paper exposed a file marked Embezzlement. The title was, of course, upside down to the rest of the group, and, since presumably it was not intended to be read by them, they read it. Horsefry even twisted his head for a better view. However, Vetinari went on, since the question of wrongdoing has been raised by Mr. Horsefry and he gave the young man a brief smile. "'I'm sure you are aware of talk suggesting a conspiracy amongst yourselves to keep rates high and competition non-existent.' The sentence came out fast and smooth like a snake's tongue, and the swift flick on the end of it was, "'And indeed some rumours about the death of young Mr. Dearheart last month.' A stir among the semicircle of men said that the shoe had been dropped. 
It wasn't a welcome shoe, but it was a shoe they had been expecting, and it had just gone thud. "'An actionable falsehood,' said Slant. "'On the contrary, Mr. Slant,' said Vetinari. "'Merely mentioning to you the existence of a rumour is not actionable, as I'm sure you are aware.' "'There is no proof that we had anything to do with the boy's murder,' snapped Horsefry. "'Ah!' "'So you too have heard people saying he was murdered,' said Vetinari, his eyes on Reacher Gilt's face. "'These rumours just fly around, don't they?' "'My lord, people talk,' said Slant wearily. "'But the facts are that Mr. Dearheart was alone in the tower. "'No one else went up or down. "'His safety line was apparently not clipped to anything. "'It was an accident such as happens often.' "'Yes, we know people say his fingers were broken, "'but with a fall of that distance, hitting the tower on the way, "'can that really be surprising? "'Alas, the Grand Trunk Company is not popular at the moment, "'and so these scurrilous and baseless accusations are made. "'As Mr. Horsefly pointed out, "'there is no evidence whatsoever "'that what happened was anything more than a tragic accident.' And, if I may speak frankly, what exactly is the purpose of calling us here? My clients are busy men. Vetinari leaned back and placed his fingers together. Let us consider a situation in which some keen and highly inventive men devise a remarkable system of communication, he said. What they have is a kind of passionate ingenuity in large amounts, "'What they don't have is money. "'They are not used to money. "'So they meet some people who introduce them to other people, "'friendly people, who for oh, a 40% stake in the enterprise "'give them the much-needed cash, "'and very important, much fatherly advice "'and an introduction to a really good firm of accountants. "'And so they proceed.' And soon money is coming in and money is going out, but somehow they learn they're not quite as financially stable as they think and really do need more money. Well, this is all fine, because it's clear to all that the basic enterprise is going to be a money tree one day. And does it matter if they sign over another 15%? It's just money. It's not important in the way that shutter mechanisms are, is it? And then they found out that, yes, it is. It is everything. Suddenly, the world's turned upside down. Suddenly, those nice people aren't so friendly anymore. Suddenly, it turns out that those bits of paper they signed in a hurry were advised to sign by people who smiled all the time, mean that they don't actually own anything at all. Not patents, not property, nothing. Not even the contents of their own heads, indeed. Even any ideas they have now don't belong to them, apparently. And somehow they're still in trouble about money. Well, some run and some hide and some try to fight, which is foolish and extreme, because it turns out that everything is legal, it really is. Some accept low-level jobs in the enterprise, because one has to live, and in any case the enterprise even owns their dreams at night. And yet, actual illegality, it would appear, has not taken place. Business is business. 
Lord Vetinari opened his eyes. The men around the table were staring at him. Just thinking aloud, he said. I am sure you will point out that this is not the business of the government. I know, Mr. Giltwill. However, since you acquired the grand trunk at a fraction of its value, I note that breakdowns are increasing, the speed of messages has slowed down, and the cost to customers has risen. Last week the grand trunk was closed for almost three days. We could not even talk to Stolat. Hardly as fast as light, gentlemen. That was for essential maintenance, Mr. Slant began. No, it was for repairs, snapped Vetinari. Under the previous management, the system shut down for an hour every day. That was for maintenance. Now the towers run until they break down. What do you think you are doing, gentlemen? That, oh my lord, and with respect, is none of your business. Lord Vetinari smiled. For the first time that morning, it was a smile of genuine pleasure. Ah, Mr. Richard Gilt, I was wondering when we'd hear from you. You have been so uncharacteristically silent. I read your recent article in the Times with great interest. You are passionate about freedom, I gather. You used the word tyranny three times and the word tyrant once. Don't patronise me, my lord, said Gilt. We are not shrunk. It is our property. You understand that? Property is the foundation of freedom. Oh, customers complain about the service and the cost, but customers always complain about such things. We have no shortage of customers at whatever cost. Before December 4, news from Genoa took months to get here. Now it takes less than a day. It is affordable magic. We are answerable to our shareholders, my lord, not with respect to you. It is not your business. It is our business, and we will run it according to the market. I hope there are no tyrannies here. This is with respect a free city. Such a lot of respect is gratifying, said the patrician, but the only choice your customers have is between you and nothing. Exactly, said Reacher Gilt calmly. There is always a choice. They can ride a horse a few thousand miles, or they can wait patiently until we can send their message. Vetinari gave him a smile that lasted as long as a lightning flash. Or fund and build another system, he said. Although I note that every other company that has lately tried to run a clack system in opposition has failed quite quickly. Sometimes, in distressing circumstances, falls from the tops of clax towers and so on. Accidents do happen. It is most unfortunate, said Mr. Slant stiffly. Most unfortunate, Vetinari echoed. He pulled the paper towards him once again, dislodging the files slightly so that a few more names were visible, and wrote, Most Unfortunate. "'Well, I believe that covers everything,' he said. "'In fact, the purpose of this meeting was to tell you formally "'that I am at last reopening the post office as planned. "'This is just a courtesy announcement, "'but I felt I should tell you because you are, after all, in the same business. "'I believe the recent string of accidents is now at an end—' "'Reacher Gilt chuckled. "'Sorry, my lord. Did I understand you correctly? "'You really intend to continue with this folly in the face of everything? "'The post office? "'When we all know that it was a lumbering, smug, overstaffed, overweight monster of a place, "'it barely earned its keep. 
It was her very essence, an exemplar of public enterprise. It never made much of a profit, it is true, but in the business areas of this city there were seven deliveries a day, said Vetinari, cold as the depths of the sea. Ha! Not at the end, said Mr. Horsfry. It was bloody useless. Indeed, a classic example of a corroded government organisation dragging on the public purse, Gilt added. Too true, said Mr. Horsfry. They used to say that if you wanted to get rid of a dead body, you should take it to the post office and it'd never be seen again. And was it? said Lord Vetinari, raising an eyebrow. Was what? Was it seen again? There was a sudden, hunted look in Mr. Horsefry's eyes. What? How would I know? Oh, I see, said Lord Vetinari. It was a joke. Ah, well. He shuffled the papers. Unfortunately, the post office came to be seen not as a system for moving the mail efficiently, to the benefit and profit of all, but as a money-box, and so it collapsed, losing both mail and money. A lesson for us all, perhaps. Anyway, I have high hopes of Mr. Lipvig, a young man full of fresh ideas, a good head for heights, too, although I imagine he will not be climbing any towers. I do hope this resurrection will not prove to be a drain on our taxes, said Mr. Slant. I assure you, Mr. Slant, that apart from the modest sum necessary to... As it were, primed the pump, the postal service will be self-supporting, as indeed it used to be. We cannot have a drag on the public purse, can we? And now, gentlemen, I am conscious that I am keeping you from your very important business. I do trust that the trunk will be back in commission very shortly. As they stood up, Reacher Gilt leaned across the table and said, May I congratulate you, my lord? "'I'm delighted that you feel inclined to congratulate me on anything, Mr. Gilt,' said Vetinari. "'To what do we owe this unique occurrence?' "'This, my lord,' said Gilt, gesturing to the little side-table on which had been set the rough-hewn piece of stone. "'Is this not an original hanaffle-baffle-sniffle-whiffle-taffle-slab? "'Clamados bluestone, isn't it? "'And the pieces look like basalt, which is the very devil to carve. "'A valuable antique, I think.' "'It was a present to me from the low king of the dwarfs,' said Vetinari. "'It is indeed very old.' "'And you have a game in progress, I see. "'You're playing the dwarf side, yes?' "'Yes. "'I play by clacks against an old friend in Überwald,' said Vetinari. "'Happily for me, your breakdown yesterday has given me an extra day to think of my next move.' "'Their eyes met. "'Reacher Gilt laughed hugely. "'Vetinari smiled.' The other men, who badly needed to laugh, laughed too. See, we're all friends, we're like colleagues, really, nothing bad is going to happen. The laughter died away, a little uneasily. Gilt and Vetinari maintained smiles, maintained eye contact. We should play a game, said Gilt. I have a rather nice board myself. I play the troll side for preference. Ruthless... "'Initially outnumbered, inevitably defeated in the hands of the careless player,' said Vetinari. "'Indeed. Just as the dwarfs rely on guile, faint, and swift change of position. "'A man can learn all of an opponent's weaknesses on that board,' said Gilt. "'Really?' said Vetinari, raising his eyebrows. "'Should he not be trying to learn his own?' "'Oh, that's just thud! That's easy!' yapped a voice. Both men turned to look at Horsefry, who had been made perky by sheer relief. 
I used to play it when I was a kid, he babbled. It's boring. The dwarfs always win. Guilt and Vetinari shared a look. It said, While I loathe you and every aspect of your personal philosophy to a depth unplumbable by any line, I'll credit you at least with not being Crispin Horsefry. Appearances are deceptive, Crispin, said Guilt jovially. A troll player need never lose, if he puts his mind to it. "'I know. I once got a dwarf stuck up my nose, and Mummy had to get it out with a hairpin,' said Horsefry, as if this was a source of immense pride. Gilt put his arm around the man's shoulders. "'That's very interesting, Crispin,' he said. "'Do you think it's likely to happen again?' Vetinari stood at the window after they had left, watching the city below. After a few minutes, Drumnot drifted in. "'There was a brief exchange in the anteroom, my lord,' he said. Vetinari didn't turn round, but held up a hand. Let me see. I imagine one of them started saying something like, Do you think he? And Slart very quickly hushed him. Mr. Horsefry, I suspect. Drumnot glanced at the paper in his hand. Almost to the word, my lord. It takes no great leap of the imagination, sighed Lord Vetinari. Dear Mr. Slant, he's so dependable. Sometimes I really think that if he was not already a zombie, it would be necessary to have him turned into one. Shall I order a number one investigation on Mr. Gilt, my lord? Good heavens, no. He is far too clever. Order it on Mr. Horsefry. Really, sir? But you did say yesterday that you believed him to be no more than a greedy fool. A nervous fool, which is useful. He's a venal coward and a glutton. I've watched him sit down to a meal of pot au feu with white beans, and that was an impressive sight, Drumnot, which I will not easily forget. The sauce went everywhere. Those pink shirts he wears cost more than a hundred dollars, too. Oh, he acquires other people's money in a safe and secret and not very clever way. Send, yes, send Clark Bryan. Bryan, sir, said Drumnot. Are you sure? He's wonderful at devices, but quite inept on the street. He'll be seen. Yes, Drumnot, I know. I would like Mr. Horsefry to become a little more nervous. Ah, I see, sir. Vetinari turned back to the window. Tell me, Drumnot, he said, would you say I'm a tyrant? Most certainly not, my lord, said Drumnot, tidying the desk. But of course, that's the problem, is it not? Who will tell the tyrant he is a tyrant? That's... "'A tricky one, my lord, certainly,' said Drumnot, squaring up the files. "'In his thoughts, which I have always considered fair badly in translation, "'Buffon says that intervening in order to prevent a murder "'is to curtail the freedom of the murderer, "'and yet that freedom, by definition, "'is natural and universal without condition,' said Vetinari. "'You may recall his famous dictum.' If any man is not free, then I too am a small pie made of chicken, which has led to a considerable amount of debate. Thus we might consider, for example, that taking a bottle from a man killing himself with drink is a charitable, nay, praiseworthy act, and yet freedom is curtailed once more. Mr. Gilt has studied his bouffant, but, I fear, failed to understand him. Freedom may be mankind's natural state, but so is sitting in a tree 
eating your dinner while it is still wriggling. On the other hand, Freidegger, in modal contextities, claims that all freedom is limited, artificial, and therefore illusory, a shared hallucination at best. No sane mortal is truly free, because true freedom is so terrible that only the mad or the divine can face it with open eyes. It overwhelms the soul, very much like the state he elsewhere describes as von alles von kommen unverständlich das Daskeit. What position would you take here, Drumnot? I've always thought, my lord, that what the world really needs are filing boxes which are not so flimsy, said Drumnot, after a moment's pause. Hmm, said Lord Vetinari. A point to think about, certainly. He stopped. On the carven decorations over the room's fireplace, a small cherub began to turn with a faint squeaking noise. Vetinari raised an eyebrow at Drumnot. "'I shall have a word with Clark Bryan immediately, my lord,' said the clerk. "'Good. Tell him it's time he got out into the fresh air more.'" Chapter 4. A Sign. Dark Clerks and Dead Postmasters. A Werewolf in the Watch. The Wonderful Pin. Mr. Lipvig reads letters that are not there. Hugo the hairdresser is surprised. Mr. Parker buys fripperies. The nature of social untruths. Princess in the tower. A man is not dead while his name is still spoken. Now then, Mr. Lipvig, what good will violence do? Mr. Pump rumbled. He rocked on his huge feet as Moist struggled in his grip. Grote and Stanley were huddled at the far end of the locker room. One of Mr. Grote's natural remedies was bubbling over onto the floor, where the boards were staining purple. "'They were all accidents, Mr. Litvig, all accidents!' Grote babbled. "'The watch was all over the place by the fourth one. They were all accidents,' they said. "'Oh, yes!' screamed Moist. Four in five weeks, eh? I bet that happens all the time round here. Ye gods! I've been done up good and brown. I'm dead, right? Just not lying down yet. Vetinari! There's a man who knows how to save the price of a rope. I'm done for. You'll feel better for a nice cup of bismuth and brimstone tea, sir, Grote quavered. I've got the kettle boiling. A cup of tea is not going to be sufficient. Moist got a grip on himself, or at least began to act as if he had, and took a deep, theatrical breath. OK, OK, Mr Pump, you can let go now. The golem released his grip. Moist straightened up. Well, Mr Grote he said. "'Looks like you're genuine after all, then,' the old man said. "'One of the dark clerks wouldn't have gone bursal like that. We thought you was one of his lordship's special gentlemen, see?' Grote fussed around the kettle. "'No offence, but you've got a bit more colour than the average pen-pusher.' "'Dark clerks,' said Moist, and then recollection dawned. "'Oh, do you mean those stocky little men in black suits and bowler hats? They're very same. Scholarship boys at the Assassin's Guild. Some of them.' I heard they can do some nasty things when they've a mind. I thought you called them pen-pushers. Yeah, but I didn't say where. <laughs> Grote caught Moist's expression and coughed. Sorry, didn't mean it, just my little joke. We reckon the last new postmaster we had, Mr Wobbleberry, he was a dark clerk. Can't hardly blame him with a name like that. He was always snooping around. And why do you think that was? said Moist. Well... Mr. Mutable, he was the first, a decent chap, he fell down into the big hall from the fifth floor. Smack, sir, smack! 
on Sir Marble. Head first. It was a bit splashy, sir. Moist glanced at Stanley, who was starting to tremble. Then there was Mr Sideburn. He fell down the back stairs and broke his neck, sir. Excuse me, sir, it's 11.43. Grote walked over to the door and opened it. Tiddles walked through. Grote shut the door again. At three in the morning it was, right down five flights, broke just about every bone you could break, sir. You mean he was wandering around without a light? Don't know, sir. But I know about the stairs. The stairs have lamps burning all night, sir. Stanley fills them every day, regular as tiddles. You use those stairs a lot, then, do you? said Moist. Never, sir, except for the lamps. Nearly everywhere on that side is bunged up with mail, but it's a post office regulation, sir. And the next man? said Moist, a little hoarsely. Another accidental fall? Oh, no, sir. Mr. Ignavia, that was his name. They said it was his heart. He was just lying dead on the fifth floor, dead as a doorknob, face all contorted like he'd seen a ghost. Natural causes, they said. Well, the watch was all over the place by then. You may depend on it. No one had been near him, they said, and there was not a mark on him. Surprised you didn't know all about this, sir. It was in the paper. Except you don't get much chance to keep up with the news in a condemned cell, Moist thought. Oh, yes, he said. And how would they know no one had been near him? Grote leaned forward and lowered his voice conspiratorially. Everyone knows there's a werewolf in the watch, and one of them could bloody nearly smell what colour clothes someone was wearing. A werewolf, said Moist, flatly. Yeah. Anyway, one before him, a werewolf. That's what I said, sir, said Grote. A damned werewolf. Takes all sorts to make a world, sir. Anyway, a werewolf. Moist awoke from the horror. And they don't tell visitors. No. How'd they do that, sir? said Grote in a kindly voice. Put it on a sign outside. Welcome to Ank Moorpork. We have a werewolf, sir. The watch has got loads of dwarfs and trolls and a golem, a free golem, saving your presence, Mr. Pump, and a couple of gnomes and a zombie, even a knobs. Knobs? What's a knobs? Corporal Nobby Nobs, sir. Not met him yet. They say he's got an official chitty saying he's human, and who needs one of those, eh? Fortunately, there's only one of him, so he can't breed. Anyway, they've got a bit of everything, sir. Very cosmopolitan. You don't like werewolves? They know who you are by your smell, thought Moist. They're as bright as a human and can track you better than any wolf. They can follow a trail that's days old, even if you cover yourself with scent. Especially if you cover yourself with scent. Oh, there's ways around, if you know there's going to be a werewolf on your tail. No wonder they caught up with me. There should be a law. Not a lot, he said aloud, and glanced at Stanley again. It was useful to watch Stanley when Grote was talking. Now the boy had his eyes turned up so much they were practically all whites. And Mr Wobbleberry, he said, he was investigating for veterinary, eh? What happened to him? Stanley was shaking like a bush in a high wind. Eh, did you get given a big key ring, sir? Grote inquired, his voice trembling with innocence. Yes, of course. I bet there is one key missing, said Grote. The watch took it. It was the only one. Some doors ought to stay closed, sir. It's all over and done with, sir. Mr Wobbleberry died of an industrial accident, they said. Nobody near him. You don't want to go there, sir. Sometimes things get so broke it's best to walk away, sir. I can't, said Moist. I am the Postmaster General. And this is my building, isn't it? I'll decide when I go, Junior Postman Grote. Stanley shut his eyes. Yes, sir, said Grote, as if talking to a child. But you don't want to go there, sir. His head was all over the wall! Stanley quavered. "'Oh, dear, now you set him off, sir,' said Grote, scuttling across to the boy. "'It's all right, lad, I'll just get you your pills.'
"'What is the most expensive pin ever made commercially, Stanley?' said Moist quickly. It was like pulling a lever. Stanley's expression went from agonised grief to scholarly cogitation in an instant. "'Commercially, leaving aside those special pins made for exhibitions and trade shows, including the Great Pin of 1899, then probably it is the number three broad-headed chicken extra-long made for the lace-making market by the noted pinner Josiah Doldrum, I would say.' They were hand-drawn and had his trademark silver head with a microscopic engraving of a cockerel. It's believed that fewer than a hundred were made before his death, sir. According to Hubert Spider's pin catalogue, examples can fetch between fifty and sixty-five dollars, depending on condition. A number three broad-headed extra-long would grace any true pinhead's collection. Only I spotted this in the street, said Moist, extracting one of that morning's purchases from his lapel. I was walking down Market Street, and there it was, between two cobblestones. I thought it looked unusual for a pin. Stanley pushed away the fussing groat and carefully took the pin from Moist's fingers. A very large magnifying glass appeared as if by magic in his other hand. The room held its breath as the pin was subjected to serious scrutiny. Then Stanley looked up at Moist in amazement. "'You knew,' he said. "'And you spotted this in a street? I thought you didn't know anything about pins.' "'Oh, not really, but I doubled a bit as a boy,' said Moist, "'waving a hand deprecatingly to suggest that he had been too foolish "'to turn a schoolboy hobby into a lifetime's obsession. "'You know, a few of the old brass imperials, "'one or two oddities like an unbroken pear or a double header, "'the occasional cheap packet of mixed pins on approval. "'Thank the gods,' he thought, for the skill of speed reading. "'Oh, there's never anything worthwhile in those,' said Stanley, "'and slid again into the voice of the academic.' While most pinheads do indeed begin with a casually acquired flashy novelty pin, followed by the contents of their grandmother's pin cushions, <laughs> the path to a truly worthwhile collection lies not in the simple disbursement of money in the nearest pin emporium. Oh, no. Any dilettante can become king pin with enough expenditure. But for the true pinhead, the real pleasure is in the joy of the chase, the pin fairs, the house clearances and... Who knows? A casual glint in the gutter that turns out to be a well-preserved double fast or an unbroken two-pointer. Well, is it said. See a pin and pick it up, and all day long you'll have a pin. Moist nearly applauded. It was word for word what J. Lanugo Owlsbury had written in the introduction to his work. And much more important, he now had an unshakable friend in Stanley. That was to say, his darker regions added, Stanley was friends with him. The boy his panic subsumed by the joy of pins, was holding his new acquisition up to the light. Magnificent, he breathed, all terrors fled. Clean as a new pin. I have a place ready and waiting for this in my pin folder, sir. Yes, I thought you might. His head was all over the wall. Somewhere there was a locked door and Moist didn't have the key. Four of his predecessors had predeceased in this very building, and there was no escape. Being postmaster-general was a job for life, one way or the other. That was why Vetinari had put him here. He needed a man who couldn't walk away, and who was incidentally completely expendable. It didn't matter if Moist von Lipvig died. He was already dead. And then he tried not to think about Mr. Pump. How many other golems had worked their way to freedom in the service of the city? Had there been a Mr. Saw, fresh from a hundred years in a pit of sawdust? Or Mr. Shovel? Mr. Axe, maybe? And had there been one here when the last poor guy had found the key to the locked door, or a good lockpick, and was about to open it when behind him someone called maybe Mr. Hammer, yes, oh God's yes, raised his fist for one sudden terminal blow.
no one had been near him. But they weren't people, were they? They were tools. It'd be an industrial accident. His head was all over the wall. I'm going to find out about this. I have to, otherwise it'll lie in wait for me. And everyone will tell me lies, but I am the Fibbermeister. Hmm? he said, aware that he'd missed something. I said, could I go and put this in my collection, Postmaster? said Stanley. What? Oh, yes, fine. Yes, give it a really good polish, too. As the boy gangled off to his end of the locker room, and he did gangle, Moist caught Groat looking at him shrewdly. "'Well done, Mr Lipvig,' he said. "'Well done. Thank you, Mr Groat. "'Good eyesight you've got there,' the old man went on. "'Well, the light was shining off it. "'Nah, I meant to see cobbles in Market Street, "'it being all brick paving up there.' Moist returned his blank stare with one even blanker. "'Bricks? Cobbles? Who cares?' he said. "'Yeah, right. Not important, really,' said Groat. "'And now,' said Moist, feeling the need for some fresh air, "'There's a little errand I have to run. "'I'd like you to come with me, Mr Groat. "'Can you find a crowbar anywhere? "'Bring it, please. "'And I'll need you, too, Mr Pump.' "'Werewolves and golems. "'Golems and werewolves,' Moist thought. "'I'm stuck here. "'I might as well take it seriously. "'I will show them a sign.' "'There's a little habit I have,' said Moist, "'as he led the way through the streets. "'It's to do with signs.' "'Signs, sir?' said Groat, trying to keep close to the walls. Yes, Junior Postman Groat, signs, said Moist, noticing the way the man winced at Junior. Particularly signs with missing letters. When I see one, I automatically read what the missing letters say. And how can you do that, sir, when they're missing, said Groat. Ah, so there's a clue as to why you're still sitting in a run-down old building making tea from rocks and weeds all day, Moist thought. Aloud, he said, it's a knack. Now, I could be wrong, of course, but... Ah, we turn left here. This was quite a busy street, and the shop was in front of them. It was everything that Moist had hoped. Voila, he said, and, remembering his audience, he added, that is to say, there we have it. It's a barber's shop, said Groat uncertainly, for ladies. Ah, you're a man of the world, Tolliver, there's no fooling you, said Moist. And the name over the window in those large blue-green letters is... Hugo's, said Groat. And? Yes. Hugo's, said Moist. No apostrophe present, in fact. And the reason for this is... You could work with me a little here, perhaps? Ah! Grote stared frantically at the letters, defying them to reveal their meaning. Close enough, said Moist. There is no apostrophe there, because there was, and is, no apostrophe in the uplifting slogan that adorns our beloved post office, Mr Grote. He waited for light to dawn. Those big metal letters were stolen from our façade, Mr Grote. I mean, the front of the building. They're the reason for glom of knit, Mr Grote. It took a little time for Mr Grote's mental sunrise to take place, but Moist was ready when it did. No, 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 he said, grabbing the old man's greasy collar as he lurched forward and almost pulling Grote off his feet. That's not how we deal with this, is it? "'That's post office property! That's worse than stealing, that is! That's treason!' Grote yelled. "'Quite so,' said Moist. "'Mr Pump, if you would just hold on to our friend here, I will go and discuss the matter.' Moist handed over the furious junior postman and brushed himself off. He looked a bit rumpled, but it would have to do. "'What are you going to do, then?' said Grote. 
Moist smiled his sunshine smile. "'Something I'm good at, Mr. Grote. I'm going to talk to people.' He crossed the road and opened the shop door. The bell jangled. Inside the hairdresser's shop was an array of little booths, and the air smelled sweet and cloying and somehow pink. Right by the door was a little desk with a big open diary. There were lots of flowers around, and the young woman at the desk gave him a haughty look that was going to cost her employer a lot of money. She waited for Moist to speak. Moist put on a grave expression, leaned down, and said in a voice that had all the characteristics of a whisper, but also seemed to be able to carry quite a long way, "'Can I see Mr. Hugo, please? It is very important.' "'On what business would that be?' "'Well, it's a little delicate,' said Moist. He could see the tops of permed heads turning. "'But you can tell him it's good news.' "'Well, if it's good news, tell him.' "'I think I can persuade Lord Vetinari "'that this can be settled without charges being brought.' "'Probably,' said Moist, "'lowering his voice just enough to increase the curiosity of the customers "'while not so much as to be inaudible.' "'The woman stared at him in horror. "'You can, um... "'She groped for an ornate speaking tube, "'but Moist took it gently from her hand, "'whistled expertly down it, "'lifted it to his ear and flashed her a smile. "'Thank you,' he said. "'For what?' did not matter. Smile, say the right kind of words in the right kind of voice, and always, always radiate confidence like a supernova. A voice in his ear, faint as a spider trapped in a matchbox, said, Hugo, said Moist, it's good of you to make time for me. It's Moist. Moist von Lipvig, Postmaster General. He glanced at the speaking tube. It disappeared into the ceiling. So kind of you to assist us, Hugo. It's these missing letters. Five. Missing letters, to be exact. I don't really carry that kind of thing, Hugo, but if you'd care to look out of your window, you'll see my personal assistant, Mr. Pump. He's standing on the other side of the street. And he's eight feet tall and carrying a huge crowbar, Moist added mentally. He winked at the lady sitting at the desk, who was watching him in a kind of awe. You had to keep people's skills polished at all times. He heard the muffled expletive through the floor. By the speaking tube it became... "'Yes,' said Moist. "'Perhaps I should come up and speak to you directly.' Ten minutes later, Moist crossed the road with care and smiled at his staff. "'Mr Pump, if you would be so good as to step over there and pry out our letters, please,' he said. "'Try not to damage anything. Mr Hugo has been very cooperative. "'And, Tolliver, you've lived here a long time, haven't you? "'You'll know where to hire men with ropes, steeplejacks, that sort of thing. "'I want those letters back on our building by midday, OK?' "'That'll cost a lot of money, Mr Litvig,' said Grote, staring at him in amazement. Moist pulled a bag out of his pocket and jingled it. "'One hundred dollars should more than cover it,' he said. "'Mr Hugo was very apologetic and very, very inclined to be helpful. "'Says he bought them years ago off a man in a pub "'and is only too happy to pay for them to be returned. "'It's amazing how nice people can be if approached in the right way.' "'There was a clang from the other side of the street. "'Mr Pump had already removed the H without any apparent effort.' "'Speak softly, and employ a huge man with a crowbar,' thought Moist. "'This might be bearable after all.' "'The weak sunlight glinted on the S as it was swung into position. "'There was quite a crowd. "'People in Ankh-Morpork always paid attention to people on rooftops, "'in case there was a chance of an interesting suicide. "'There was a cheer, just on general principles, "'when the last letter was hammered back into place. Four dead men,' Moist thought, looking up at the roof.' I wonder if the watch would talk to me. Do they know about me? Do they think I'm dead? 
Do I want to speak to policemen? No. Damn. Any way I can get out of this is by running forward, not running back. Bloody, bloody veterinary. But there's a way to win. He could make money. He was part of the government, wasn't he? Governments took money off people. That's what they were for. He had people skills, hadn't he? He could persuade people that brass was gold, that had got a bit tarnished, that glass was diamond, that tomorrow there was going to be free beer. He'd outfox them all. He wouldn't try to escape, not yet. If a golem could buy its freedom, then so could he. He'd buckle down and bustle and look busy, and he'd send all the bills to veterinary, because this was government work. How could the man object? And if Moist von Lipwig couldn't cream a little something, a big something off the top, and the bottom, and maybe a little off the sides, then he didn't deserve to. And then, when it was all going well and the cash was rolling in, well, then there'd be time to make plans for the big one. Enough money bought a lot of men with sledgehammers. The workmen pulled themselves back onto the flat roof. There was another ragged cheer from a crowd that reckoned it hadn't been bad entertainment, even if no one had fallen off. "'What do you think, Mr Grote?' he said. "'Looks nice, sir. Looks nice,' said Grote, as the crowd dispersed and they walked back to the post-office building. "'Not disturbing anything, then?' said Moist. Grote patted the surprised Moist on the arm. "'I don't know why his lordship sent you, sir. Really, I don't,' he whispered. "'You mean well, I can see. But take my advice, sir, and get out of here.' Moist glanced towards the building's doors. Mr Pump was standing beside them, just standing, with his arms hanging down. The fire in his eyes was a banked glow. "'I can't do that,' he said. "'Nice of you to say so, sir, but this place isn't for a young man with a future,' said Grote. "'Now, Stanley, he's all right if he's got his pins, but you, sir, you could go far.' "'No, I don't think I can,' said Moist. "'Honestly, my place, Mr Grote, is here.' "'Gods bless you for saying that, sir. Gods bless you,' said Grote. Tears were beginning to roll down his face. "'We used to be heroes,' he said. "'People wanted us. Everyone watched out for us. Everyone knew us. "'This was a great place once. Once we were postmen.' "'Mister!' Moist turned. Three people were hurrying towards him, and he had to quell an automatic urge to turn and run, especially when one of them shouted, "'Yeah, that's him!' He recognised the greengrocer from this morning. An elderly couple were trailing behind him. The older man, who had the determined face and upright bearing of a man who subdued cabbages daily, stopped an inch in front of Moist and bellowed, "'Are you the postman, young man?' "'Yes, sir, I suppose I am,' said Moist. "'How can I—' "'You delivered me this letter from Aggie here. "'I'm Tim Parker.' the man roared. Now, there's some people that say it was a bit on the late side. Oh, said Moist. Well, I... That took a bit of nerve, young man. Uh, I'm very sorry that, Moist began, people's skills weren't much good in the face of Mr Parker. He was one of the impervious people whose grasp of volume control was about as good as his understanding of personal space. Sorry? Parker shouted. What have you got to be sorry about? Not your fault, lad. You weren't even born. More fool me for thinking she didn't care, eh? Ha! I was so downhearted, lad, I went right out and joined the, uh, oh, his red face wrinkled. You know, camels, funny hats, sand, where you got to forget? The Clatchian Foreign Legion, said Moist. That was it. And when I came back, I met Sadie, and Aggie had met her, Frederick, and we both got settled and forgot the other one was alive, and then blow me down if this letter didn't arrive from Aggie. Me and my lad have spent half the morning tracking her down. And to cut a long story short, lad, we're getting married Saturday. Cos of you, boy. Mr Parker was one of those men who turn into teak with age. When he slapped Moist on the back, it was like being hit with a chair. "'Won't Frederick and Sadie object?' Moist wheezed. "'I doubt it,' 
Frederick passed away ten years ago, and Sadie's been buried up in small gods for the last five, Mr Parker bellowed cheerfully. And we were all sorry to see him go, but as Aggie says, it was all meant to be, and you were sent by our power. And I say, it took a man with real backbone to come and deliver that letter after all this time. There's many that would have tossed it aside like it was of no account. You do me, and the future second Mrs Parker, a great favour if you was to be guest of honour at our wedding, and I for one won't take no for an answer. I'm a Grand Master of the Guild of Merchants this year too. We might not be posh like the Assassins or the Alchemists, but there's a lot of us, and I shall put in a word on your behalf. You can depend on that. My lad George here will be down later on with the invitations for you to deliver. Now you're back in business. It will be a great honour for me, my boy, if you would shake me by the end. He thrust out a huge hand. Moist took it, and old habits died hard. Firm grip, steady gaze. Ah, you're an honest man, all right, said Parker. I'm never mistaken. He clapped his hand on Moist's shoulder, causing a knee joint to crunch. What's your name, lad? Uh, Lipvig, sir. Uh, Moist von Lipvig, Moist said. He was afraid he'd gone deaf in one ear. A von, eh? said Parker. Well, you're doing damn well for a foreigner, and I don't care who knows it. Gotta be going now. Aggie wants to buy fripperies. The woman came up to Moist, stood on tiptoe and kissed him on the cheek. And I know a good man when I see one, she said. Do you have a young lady? What? No, not at all. I, I, no, said Moist. I'm sure you shall, she said, smiling sweetly. And while we're very grateful to you, I would advise you to propose in person. We do so much look forward to seeing you on Saturday. Moist watched her scurry away after her long-lost swain. You delivered a letter? said Grote, horrified. Yes, Mr Grote. I didn't mean to, but I just happened to be... You took one of the old letters and you delivered it? said Grote, as if the concept was something he could not fit in his head. His head was all over the wall. Moist blinked. We are supposed to deliver the mailman. That's our job, remember? You delivered a letter? breathed Grote. What was the date on it? I can't remember. More than forty years ago. What was it like? Was it in good condition? Grote insisted. Moist glared at the little postman. A small crowd was forming around them, as was the Ankh-Morpork way. It was a forty-year-old letter and a cheap envelope, he snarled, and that's what it looked like. It never got delivered and it upset the lives of two people. I delivered it and it's made two people very happy. What is the problem, Mr Grote? Yes, what is it? This was to a woman who was tugging at his sleeve. I said, is it true you're opening the old place again, she repeated. My granddad used to work there. Well done him, said Moist. He said there was a curse, said the woman, as if the idea was rather pleasing. Really, said Moist. Well, we do not believe in going crazy in the postal service, do we, Mr Grote? He stopped. Mr Grote had the expression of one who did believe in going crazy. You daft old woman, Grote yelled. What do you have to tell him that for? Mr Grote, snapped Moist. I wish to speak to you inside. He grabbed the old man by the shoulder and very nearly carried him through the amused crowd, dragged him into the building and slammed the door. I've had enough of this, he said. Enough of dark comments on mutterings, do you understand? No more secrets. What's going on here? What went on here? You tell me right now, or... The little man's eyes were full of fear. This is not me, Moist thought. This is not the way. People skills, eh? You tell me right now, senior postman Grote, he snapped. The old man's eyes widened. Senior postman? I am the postmaster in this vicinity, yes, said Moist. That means I can promote, yes. Senior postman indeed, on probation, of course. Now, will you tell me what... Don't you hurt Mr Grote, sir, said a ringing voice behind Moist. Grote looked past Moist into the gloom and said, 
It's all right, Stanley. There's no need for that. We don't want a little moment. To Moist, he whispered, Best you put me down gently, sir. Moist did so, with exaggerated care, and turned round. The boy was standing behind him with a glazed look on his face and the big kettle raised. It was a heavy kettle. You mustn't hurt Mr. Grout, sir, he said hoarsely. Moist pulled a pin out of his lapel. Of course not, Stanley. By the way, is this a genuine clay feather medium sharp? Stanley dropped the kettle, suddenly oblivious of everything but the inch of silvery steel between Moist's fingers. One hand was already pulling out his magnifying glass. Let me see, let, let me see, he said in a level, thoughtful voice. Oh, yes, ha! No, sorry, it's an easy mistake to make. Look at the marks on the shoulder here, see? And the head was never coiled. This is machine-made, probably by one of the Happily brothers. Short run, I imagine. Hasn't got their sigil, though. Could have been done by a creative apprentice. Not worth much, I'm afraid, unless you find someone who specialises in the minutiae of the Happily pinnery. I'll, uh, I'll just make a cup of tea, shall I? said Grote, picking up the kettle as it rolled backwards and forwards on the floor. Well done again, Mr. Lipbig. Er, uh, senior postman Grote, right? Off you go with, yes, probationary senior postman Grote, Stanley, said Moist as kindly as he could manage. He looked up and added sharply, I just want to talk to Mr. Pump here. Stanley looked round at the golem who was right behind him. It was astonishing how quietly a golem could move. He'd crossed the floor like a shadow and now stood with one still fist, raised like the wrath of gods. "'Oh, I didn't see you standing there, Mr Pump,' said Stanley cheerfully. "'Why is your hand up?' The holes in the golem's face bathed the boy in red light. "'I wanted to ask the postmaster a question,' said the golem slowly. "'Oh, all right,' said Stanley, as if he hadn't been about to brain Moist a moment before. "'Do you want your pin back, Mr Lipvig?' he added, and when Moist waved him away, he went on, "'All right, I'll put it in next month's charity pin auction.' When the door had shut behind him, Moist looked up at the golem's impassive face. "'You lied to him.' "'Are you allowed to lie, Mr Pump?' he said. "'And you can lower that arm, by the way.' "'I have been instructed as to the nature of social untruths, yes.' "'You were going to smash his brains out,' said Moist. "'I would have endeavoured not to,' the golem rumbled. "'However, I cannot allow you to come to inappropriate harm. "'It was a heavy kettle.' "'You can't do that, you idiot,' said Moist, "'who'd noticed the use of inappropriate. "'I should have let him kill you,' said the golem. "'It would not have been his fault. "'His head is not right.' "'It would have been even less right if you'd walloped it. "'Look,' I sorted it out. Yes, Pump said. You have a talent. It is a pity you misuse it. Do you understand anything I'm saying? shouted Moist. You can't just go around killing people. Why not? You do? The golem lowered his arm. What? snapped Moist. I do not. Who told you that? I've worked it out. You have killed 2.338 people, said the golem calmly. I have never laid a finger on anyone in my life, Mr. Pump. I may be all the things you know I am, but I am not a killer. I have never so much as drawn a sword. No, you have not. But you have stolen, embezzled, defrauded, and swindled without discrimination, Mr. Lipvig. You have ruined businesses and destroyed jobs. When banks fail, it is seldom bankers who starve. 
Your actions have taken money from those who had little enough to begin with. In a myriad small ways, you have hastened the deaths of many. You do not know them. You did not see them bleed. But you snatched bread from their mouths and tore clothes from their backs. For sport, Mr. Lipvig, for sport, for the joy of the game. Moist's mouth had dropped open. It shut. It opened again. It shut again. You can never find repartee when you need it. You're nothing but a walking flowerpot, Pump 19, he snapped. Where did that come from? I have read the details of your many crimes, Mr. Lipvig, and pumping water teaches one the value of rational thought. You took from others because you were clever and they were stupid. Hold on, most of the time they thought they were swindling me. You set out to trap them, Mr. Lipvig, said Mr. Pump. Moist went to prod the golem meaningfully, but decided against it just in time. A man could break a finger that way. Well, think about this, he said. I'm paying for all that. I was nearly hanged, goddammit. Yes, but even now you harbour thoughts of escape, of somehow turning the situation to your advantage. They say the leopard does not change his shorts. But you have to obey my orders, yes, snarled Moist. Yes, then screw your damned head off. End of CD 3